Garçon, coffee. Welcome to the Coffee and Death Six podcast. My name is Kevin Romani. And I am Danny Marchand. Welcome back, Danny Marchand. Thank you. One month in to fa- with fatherhood. How's yep. it been? It's easy. People make a big deal of it. It's a breeze. <laughs> not, not that hard. Well, it's a lot easier than making movies. So and the movie that <laughs> the movie that we're going to be talking about looked like it probably was pretty difficult to make given the visual design to it. But we are reviewing The Tragedy of Macbeth. When I had Zach Rentschler on and we gave our Oscar preview, this is one that I said I was very much looking forward to for mostly because I'm a huge Coen Brothers fan. This movie is made by just one of the Coen Brothers, Joel Coen. But I was also taken aback by the visual design of the movie, the way the trailer showcased what this was going to look like and the atmosphere and the tone. I was really, really excited for it. Um, But we have now both watched it via Apple TV, correct? Mm -hmm. Right. That's okay. Awesome. Uh, So those were the reasons I was interested in it. Danny is very much both a Shakespeare expert, but especially Macbeth. So I may be asking Danny some clarifying (laughs) questions and he will be, I think, driving this episode. So Danny, without further ado, what did you think of the tragedy of Macbeth? I really like this movie. Um, As you said, I do... I'm definitely not a Shakespeare expert, but I love Shakespeare. Um, I love Macbeth. Uh, I've loved Macbeth since we had to read it in high school. I don't, it, it felt like a dream. It felt while I was watching it, it felt like a dream. And then the movie ends and you sort of wake up. And my first, I just wanted to, to go back to sleep. Um, and I watched it again the next day. So I, I, I've watched it twice now, uh, both times. I've really, really loved it. I'm really taken with it. I think it's probably, even though I'm, I saw it, you know, this year, I know it technically came out in 2021. So I guess probably my favorite movie of 2021, even though I saw it in 2022. Um, yeah, just I, and cause I, there are a lot of good film adaptations of Macbeth, uh, that I've really liked. And I was sort of hoping that this one would be as good, if not better. And I think for me, it's probably my favorite. Okay. Well, this movie started and I was immediately absorbed by the visual design. Even the aspect ratio shortens and you captured it very well by saying it was like a dream. I felt like I was entering into a dream. I felt out of sorts a bit and the black and white, the production design, the fog, the Carter Burwell score, mm-hmm. it all brought me into this world. And I thought, oh my God, this is gorgeous. I'm in love with this. And then someone started talking. And then I was a little less <laughs> interested in this movie. Um, I'm not a big Shakespeare fan. I totally understand why his stories have stood the test of time. I think he's a wonderful plotter and the themes in his works are you know still relevant today and still work really well with modern storytelling there's a reason why people either remake his stories directly or very much borrow the themes from all of his work so i get all of that and i really liked the plotting and the scheming but all of the actual dialogue and speeches from the play 
it's tough for someone like me who is not for a simpleton who is not at, no, no, I know I'm not. I, it just, it's just such a specific dialect. It's mm-hmm. such a specific way to, of speaking that I am then distracted trying to figure out what everybody is saying. Now, fortunately this was so well done visually that I could have just muted this movie and watched mm. it and kind of understood what was going on. If I could have watched this with just the Carter Burwell score and the sound effects, but then mute the dialogue, I might have preferred that experience more. It all goes back to your experience learning it in high school. And if you learn it in that, I don't like, I don't know how you were taught it, but that awful sort of just line by line, a teacher explaining, well, here's what he meant here. And here's what he meant here. And this is a reference to this. And, uh, you know, this is a clever little use of, it's like checking out. I don't give a shit. (laughs) I don't care. But, uh, I, sort of I found that boring and so I just sought out other people and how they you know Kenneth Branagh films of course were like a huge he makes them very accessible and so I've just become used to the language I've 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 I'll see anything Shakespeare even just a filmed stage production Mm -hmm. if it has like a a good actor that playing one of the one of the bigger parts I'll check it out or rent it and so I think I'm just used to the rhythms by this point um i probably would not have enjoyed this movie as much in high school or college but since i've just spent so much time watching shakespeare movies and shakespeare productions and i just think i'm just used to that kind of the way they communicate but it is it is like it's alienating if it's not something that you enjoy or that is that isn't uh entertaining it does it can be like tough to just overcome that because they're not they're not talking right (laughs) well that may have been a so it was a smart way of making this movie like you said joel cohen was like i need to make a movie and not just the adaptation of a stage play so i think he made it accessible to shakespeare fans and then to movie lovers Mm -hmm. or by movie more like cinema lovers like the art of making movies so that's where i found the appreciation of it so i i liked this movie i ultimately enjoyed watching it but it was primarily because of the technical aspects and not the story or the performances Mm -hmm. if you're just a if you just like movies entertaining and you're not a shakespeare fan this is not something I would recommend. Like if you, if you see this get a bunch of Oscar nominations, which I am sure it will, I don't think mainstream audiences should dive into this. This is a really specific type of viewing experience. Agreed. Completely agree. I think there are certain Shakespeare movies that are like good gateway Shakespeare movies. Uh, Mm -hmm. Kenneth Branagh, basically any one of his movies, except for his fucking seven hour long Hamlet that is on interminable but henry v and much ado about nothing are great sort of 
a way to get you into Shakespeare or just a, a Shakespeare film that you don't even have to like Shakespeare. They're just, he, they're really good movies, very accessible, but like Titus starring Anthony Hopkins, that's not a good first Shakespeare movie. It's insane. And I think if you're looking for a really accessible version of Macbeth, it's either the Michael Fassbender one from a couple years ago, which sets it in yes. Scotland and is very sort of grounded in the setting. And it's pretty, it's played basically straight except for the Shakespearean dialogue and, or um, <laughs> all around great guy, Roman Polanski's 1971 Macbeth. Those are probably the two accessible Macbeths in terms of okay. it's set in Scotland. It's the middle ages. He wants to be the King, you know, complications ensue. This one, uh, Throne of Blood, the Kurosawa sort of yes, version of it. Yes, right. uh, Orson Welles' uh, 1948 Macbeth, which is kind of similar to this. Those are for like the weirdos, the Shakespeare nerds, the cinema, the cinema snobs. If you if you want someone to just watch and enjoy Macbeth, this is probably not the one to show them first. Hmm. Um, even the Patrick Stewart like PBS one like a TV movie is a great like introduction. Cause it's, again, it's set in like modern, they kind of do the modern dress thing where it's supposed to be like Stalinist Russia, but it's oh. very simple. It's not a lot of, not a lot of, um, there's no, you know, it's not a lot of German expressionism in those other adaptations. This one is very not, yeah. vaulted cathedrals and just so stylized that it's not really meant to be take place. It's not, it doesn't actually take place in Scotland. It's just, it's a drama just elevated to this like unreal plane. That was one of my takeaways watching this too, was I felt this story and it has been, whether it's you're actually calling it based off of Macbeth or you're just borrowing ideas from it. This could be any political situation mm -hmm. at all. It doesn't have to be medieval Scotland, like house of cards. I know this was a huge influence on that. Um, I, spoilers i should say brief spoilers to anyone who's unfamiliar with macbeth <laughs> and i i actually don't think we're going to talk too much about the actual events but i had it i was convinced that lady macbeth kills macbeth mm. that my mm -hmm. i think i've thought that for the past 20 30 years because i well 30 years for the past 20 years i've thought this um the British House of Cards, the original House of Cards. The better House of Cards. The better House of Cards. Have you seen it? Yes, I love it. Okay. The superior so House of Cards. How that ended yeah. was how I thought Macbeth ended, and that wasn't the case. So I was a little I was a little disappointed because I wanted that to happen. Uh, but you mentioned the Patrick Stewart version being kind of like a Stalin setting for this story, which makes sense. And it's also funny that you referenced the Michael Fassbender version, because that's one I wanted to see when it came out. And then I kind of forgot about it. And then after watching this, I remembered, Oh wait, there was a, I think a normal version of this movie was made like six, seven years ago. So I thought, it was, yeah. So it's Fassbender and Marianne Cotillard and yeah. that's actually on HBO max. So I think I will, watch that to see what I, what I think of a more streamlined like movie narrative. And it is, it's very streamlined. It's when I was in, as you know, there was a time where I think both of us wanted to make movies. Um, mm -hmm. But as we learned more about making movies, we just mm. absolutely not under no circumstances. That sounds like a nightmare. When I was in college, I, one of the movies I always wanted to make was I wanted to make a movie adaptation of Macbeth. And then I saw the Michael Fassbender Macbeth and I was like, well, that's the one I wanted to make. So never mind. <laughs> and it, so I think you might, if you're kind of less interested in, 
yeah, I think I think you might enjoy that one more. Just okay. because it is, it's very sort of streamlined. It got criticism for that, which happens all the time. Whenever someone sort of tries to streamline a Shakespearean play, you know, there'll be there's a whole sort of species of critic that's like, I can't believe you did that. It's like it's just, I mean, calm down. There's a lot of writers. Mm. Like Shakespeare's pretty good, but you need to relax. Like it's it's you. I don't think. I think something people forget is these weren't meant to be. These were just scripts. Yes. And then they just kind of have been, they're, they're scripts. Like they're just the scripts he wrote for his actors. Like they're not meant to be, I don't think they should be treated with the level of reverence that they are in terms of like, I can't believe you cut this. I can't believe you gave that line to this character. I can't like all that stuff. I just don't, I don't care about. Um, I, I love it when they make little changes, like the character of, um, Ross in this movie has a much bigger part than he does. If you just read the play, he's with Macbeth and then he's with uh, Malcolm. He's, he's one of the, the murderers who kills uh, Banquo's son. Like I like that. Just make little changes to kind of make it work as a movie or to make it work more dramatically for whoever is adapting it. Um, you know, there's a, there's, there's a version of Richard the third where Richard the third wins the little duel at the end and then is sort of tricked and killed. And then the heroic character is sort of taking the credit. That's not in the, the text, but it's a lot closer to the history that Richard III is based on. And it's just an interesting, it's just an interesting interpretation. So I get mm-hmm. really annoyed when these adaptations come out and they're treated, they're not treated as what they are, which is an adaptation of a screenplay, basically, that you have, yeah. that you have to translate to screen. And if it, not everything works... Like the Porter scene is a good example. Those are all inside jokes from <laughs> from the 16th century. Like that doesn't necessarily translate as well to the modern day. What does translate is he's drunk, and that's kind of funny. Like so, I, I I like it when they when they make those changes. I think Shakespeare should be treated with a little less reverence. And if these are getting made every six, seven years, like they are now, mm-hmm. if there's one version that's a little bit more narratively accessible to modern audiences, and then the next one's a little bit more of a visual experience that strictly adapts the dialogue as it was written, then what's the harm in that? There can be a l- something for everybody. The Kenneth Branagh Hamlet is every single line, every single word. It's four and a half hours long, and it is a snooze fast from beginning to end. It's boring. The... Kenneth Branagh Henry V cuts out tons of things, shuffles around a bunch of things, definitely completely like recontextualizes the story, makes characters completely different. And it is so much better than really any Henry V that you're going to see. Like, so you have to translate it to, to the screen. I think for whatever reason, Lawrence Olivier and his whole approach is still like linked in people's minds with how to make Shakespeare work on film. And he's like one of the worst actors that's ever lived. And all three of his movies are just so boring and they're just faithful. It's like, yep, that's exactly what you'd kind of guess, but there's nothing interesting there. Now is the winter of our discontent made glorious summer by this son of York. And all the clouds that lowered upon our house in the deep bosom of the ocean, buried. Now are our brows bound with victorious wreaths, our bruised arms hung up for monuments, 
Our stern alarms changed to merry meetings. Our dreadful marches to delightful measures. Grim-visaged war has smoothed his wrinkled front. And now, instead of mounting barbed steeds to fright the souls of fearful adversaries, he capers nimbly in a lady's chamber to the lascivious pleasing of a lute. Two reasons I was most interested in seeing this movie were the visual design and the fact that it was made by Joel Cohen. After watching this movie, it is the least Cohen brother movie ever by far they have such a distinct style and tone in all of their movies and i know this is only made by one of the cohen's but that that shouldn't really matter for this element but what i was taken away by was this felt like shakespeare first because it was so you know it was so literal and and, yes. um, and focused on Macbeth and the dialogue from the original version of the play but then more than anything else after that, it felt like an A24 movie. Yeah. So when you see that, it was interesting. I, I'm not sure all of the behind the scenes of how this got made. Like what, what was the inciting incident of making this movie who conceived it? If it was sort of a, it, it feels more like it was an A24 project that Joel Cohen happened upon right. and less so Joel Cohen wanting to make this, but I, I'm probably wrong. My assumption is when you're at the level of Joel Cohen, you conceive a movie and then you make the movie. Mm. But when, you know, the A24 title card comes up, like I said, when that aspect ratio switched, when I see the black and white and all of the moodiness of everything, yeah. I'm thinking of the witch. I'm thinking of the lighthouse. Then even the first actor you see is the father from the witch mm -hmm. who's also on game of Thrones. So I'm, I was very much in a, this is an A24 project a24 making a shakespeare yes. play like the only times i was reminded that this was joel cohen were when cohen brother actors popped up which yeah even that isn't that many like there's one scene one scene with steven root which mm -hmm. was like that was okay that's steven root yeah uh <laughs> recognized him from so many cohen's and i'm surprised he's in this and then he never came back again he was only in the one scene and of course, Frances McDermott has been in so many. She's married with, uh, to Joel Cohen. So those two. And then you reminded me of Dudley Dursley, too, being in Ballad of Buster Scruggs. And Brendan so, Gleeson, because he's in Buster Scruggs as well. Oh, Brendan Gleeson. So they're, like, they're okay. like recent additions to the Cohen. But yes. no Tim Blake Nelson, you know, no, no, John, no, no John Turturro. Like, they're not their usual. No John Goodman. No, no John Goodman. Yeah, not their usual. I mean, when I first saw on the Cohen Brothers filmography, page on wikipedia years ago the tragedy of macbeth i assumed it was the two of them and i remember thinking that's gonna be weird like who are like i was picturing macbeth but with steve buscemi and john Turturro and jeff bridges like i was picturing <laughs> like a weird kooky macbeth and i just had a hard time wrapping my head around that and then it was just joel and it started to make more sense of of any coen brother movie this is the most similar and tone, I guess, or that the feeling it gives you is to Blood Simple, which of course is yes. not really a Coen Brothers movie. Like Raising Arizona is the real first Coen Brothers movie. Yeah. In terms yeah, of it being recognizably, oh yeah, these guys, like a little goofy, a little silly, a little serious, um, a little heightened, that kind of thing. Um, and yeah. And I mean, uh, Catherine Hunter who plays, it's just one witch in this, but the witches is, she could absolutely be an A24 
horror movie villain. She's so small and skinny and she's always contorting herself and her voice is so strange. Like it absolutely could be, you, you look, you seem, I thought, I thought that was Andy circus. No, <laughs> <laughs> I'm just kidding. I, I knew it wasn't Andy circus, no. but in the first scene, the performance was so golem. I was oh, yeah. like, yeah, yeah. Sister, where the hell? Look what I have. Show me. Show me. Here I have a sailor's thumb, wrecked as homeward he did come. A drum. A drum. Like a breath that come. She yeah. played Mrs. Fig in Harry Potter 5. Yes, I looked yes. her up after yes. and saw. Yeah, I, I thought maybe for a second, I is that um, moaning Myrtle? Oh, but, no, no, yeah, when I saw Harry Potter, but she's no. hopefully Shirley Henderson is hopefully busy working on the Disney Plus Babu Frick adventure solo story. <laughs> um, hopefully, fingers crossed. I um, love Babu Frick. <laughs> Babu Frick is is unironically my favorite Star Wars character from the sequel. <laughs> but yes, this is like a twenty four presents. The tragedy of Macbeth. Oh, by the way, it's directed by Joel Cohen. Yeah, yeah. Which I, is, I though, if I could pick any filmmaking team or individual person, there aren't many that have as as distinct of a style. Like you know, when you're watching a Cohen Brothers movie, you are watching a Cohen Brothers movie. Yeah, um, I know that in fact because I was telling Dan, I've watched all of them now in the past mm-hmm. year. So some of them that I've missed over the years, or rewatching them for a second, or. 20th time in the case of the big Lebowski and Fargo at least. Uh, so yeah. And then even thematically, the only real similarity is a, a scheme, a conspiracy gone awry that is often in their movies. That they violence love... just leads to violence upon you. Yes. It never ends. Once you make that first choice, you're just life. You're just steeped in blood until, until you die. Yeah. Spoiler. Yes. Macbeth. <laughs> <laughs> if you're a title character in a Shakespeare play, things don't end well for you. Just as a general rule of thumb. <laughs> Good to know. Good to know. Yeah. So I, that was what I was most surprised by after watching this was not, like you said, it was almost an afterthought mm. and directed by Joel Cohen. And I had, I had misspoken in my episode with Zach when we were talking about this. And I said, you know, uh, this seemed like it was a passion project for Joel Cohen and the two of them are going to go right back working together. But Danny has informed me of some potentially devastating news that apparently Ethan Cohen might be out of the movie making business altogether. So it could be Joel Cohen moving forward exclusively. Yeah. Which is, I mean, the Corn brothers have, if you're, if you're kind of from our, generation if you're kevin if you're the age that kevin and i are the coen brothers have been making movies as long as we've been alive basically and they are making some often they're making the best movies i mean their move their track record except for like a couple awkward years between like oh brother where art thou and no country for old men they basically release an essentially perfect film every time they make a movie um and the only reason you rank them is because all their movies are so great that something has to be at the bottom and something has to be at the top. Uh, they're just such a singular thing in in cinema and movie making history. And if this if this really is sort of the end for them, like what that's the end of a 
it's the end of an era. It's just so. Yeah. I've always looked forward to the next Coen Brothers movie. They seem completely separate from everything. Hollywood trends into like any trend or change in style or opinion or like they're just completely unique. They just, they've just always done their own thing and they just really don't care. And sometimes it resonates with the public and sometimes it's just sort of too weird. And I mean, even to this, you know, they make no country for old men. It's this incredibly uh, well-received movie. It's a great movie. And then they make Burn After Reading and everyone is sort of like, that won't, that was weird. But I mean, they just don't care. They just keep making their movies and they're always, there's, I've only ever seen one Coen Brother movie that I just outright thought was bad, that I just didn't like it at all. And that's um, Intolerable Cruelty. That's the only yeah. one where I was just like, eh, I don't. There's been others I haven't liked as much, like The Man Who Wasn't There. But that, oh, I love The Man uh, Who Wasn't There. Oh, that's one of my favorite. That Coen's. one that's bummed funny. me out. But I mean, yeah, it's a good movie. It's just a matter mm-hmm. of I just didn't care for it. But Intolerable Intolerable Cruelty was the one, and The Lady Killers to a certain extent. Yeah, I was just those two. I felt just, eh, I just oh, these aren't very good. But then, what do they make after that? No Country for Old Men, one of one of the best movies ever made yeah <laughs> just a great film and then they kept making you know true grit comes after that a serious man inside lewin davis hail caesar which isn't their last film it's their second to last film but i always think of it as their last film because it's so it seems like such a love letter to all the things that they loved old movie making uh big casts uh, wacky capers, George Clooney being an idiot, yeah. like hallmarks of a Coen Brothers movie. The fixer character. The fixer they love character. That. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Hail Caesar, Hail Caesar is a perfect example of what they're capable of. And it's, you know, while I say you can tell a Coen when you're watching a Coen, they, a lot of their characters have quirkiness to them and they talk similarly in characters. One thing I've, I noticed that I, you know, you don't quite remember it all the time when you watch Coen Brother movies, but they, every movie has a character that just has a scene where they repeat lines over yeah. and over yeah. again. That's was, such a distinct <clears throat> trait of theirs, I which I love. Just thinking of, I don't like intolerable cruelty, but I will always remember the guy with the Pomeranian who keeps saying that foolish man during the trial scene. I still remember that guy because he's yeah. like, that's a Coen Brothers character. Like only they would think of yeah. some strange little man who keep has this one phrase that he can't, it's like, he just, it's like, he can't stop saying it. Like it's involuntary and they yeah. have, you know, there's one, I think we've referenced a couple times um, on this, on this show. They're going to kill that poor woman, man. They're going to kill that poor woman, man. And they're going to, they're going to kill that poor woman. They're going to kill that poor woman. I read a great, I don't know if it's Patton Oswalt who said this, or Patton Oswalt was talking about the person who said this. But basically the idea is that most movies are, you go to the circus and there's a, there's like a ringleader or a, a guy takes you around and shows you all the different exhibits. Like, here's the bearded lady, here are the conjoined twins, here's an elephant playing piano, whatever. The Coen brothers are, you don't go to the circus. You go to the warehouse where all the circus stuff is kept and they just mm. open the doors and they're like, all right, there you go. It's all in there. And you just, nice. kind of, you just kind of wander around with all these strange 
weird things and there's no guide. There's no like very few of their movies have someone that you latch onto in the way that you normally latch onto people in, in movies. I think Fargo is probably the closest. Like Marge is kind of the most sort of normal <laughs> Coen yeah. protagonist in a way. She's just trying to do her job. And maybe True Grit also, but yes, True Grit, yes, yeah, True Grit. But you're right; they <clears throat> they don't have many classic protagonists. No. Many of their movies don't even have a plot. Really, nope. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're just like Inside Lewin Davis doesn't yep. really have a plot. It's just a lot of things kind of happening. Yep. Uh, same with even the Big Lebowski, of course. Uh, but there's they they know characters, mm-hmm. so what they know they know how to make memorable characters through their dialogue and their actions. And there's such technical wonders, the cinematography editing score and all of their movies are superb. And like, I, you know, like I, I think of a guy like Wes Anderson who can get mm-hmm. criticized for all of his movies are feel similar uh, with the look, feel characters, story, etc. The Coen's, in a way feel that way, but then it feels like every movie is so different. Like it's such a remarkable thing that they're able to do that. It's like, Oh yeah, those are similar. And, but they're, but they felt so different. And, you know, like you said, they make their two goofy, least successful movies consecutively intolerable, intolerable cruelty and the lady killers. And then their next movie is no country for old men. And then from Oh seven to 2010, they had four movies out every year. It's no country for old men. Burn After Reading, this offbeat comedy, a serious man about a a Jewish professor in suburbia America in the early 1960s that is to such a specific audience, and then a True Grit Western remake. It's like they're they're all over the place Mm -hmm. in terms of genre, but they but they all have that heart and attention to character that i love so much and you just you think about these characters often after watching the movie they're 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 remarkable they use actors like john goodman doesn't play the same character type in every coen brothers movie i mean walter is completely different um I just completely blanked on his character's name from Barton Fink, but you, you know, like just, I'm saying like yeah. he, he's always playing, the characters are always different. Like John Turturro is not playing the same guy. Steve Buscemi's not playing the same guy. Francis McDormand's never playing the same person. Like they, they use actors in interesting ways. They seem to never want to get pinned down as we make caper movies. We make heist movies or any of that stuff. You know, it, it almost, they're kind of similar to Bob Dylan in that respect where as soon as people start saying, well, you're known for doing this, like a child, they're like, no, I'm not. And they just do something completely <laughs> different. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. country, you guys, that's right. You guys are really good at the whole like neo Western thing. Okay. Let's just make a movie. That's about the dumbest people that have ever lived. And it's like Washington <laughs> DC. You know what I mean? Or like, or, or let's make a trip. You think we're good at neo westerns? Well, we're gonna make we're gonna make a better version of a western that already exists. We'll, that make, one one, the, yeah. we'll make one of the best classic westerns ever made, and we're gonna make it in 2010 when no one goes to see westerns. <laughs> yeah, and we're gonna give yeah. like Matt Damon one of his best parts playing a complete oaf. Mm-hmm. Like they're just so they they never seem to get bored which is why it kind of makes me happy that it sounds like ethan cohen was like i think i might be getting bored so i'm just going to stop making movies because yeah. there's nothing worse than a director sort of phoning it in or not caring about what they're what they're making and they clearly have always cared in yeah. every movie they make um 
the one thing they do like to repeat, and I think this is hilarious, is their commitment to casting George Clooney, one of the most beloved, handsome, classic Hollywood stars, and just making him play the dumbest possible (laughs) version of the character, like, archetype that he's portraying. Like, he's going to play a Clark Gable scoundrel in No Brother Where Art Thou, but he's an idiot. You know, he's going to play a a special CIA agent, but he's an idiot. He's going to play an old Hollywood actor, but he's an idiot. Like, I think that's... I find that hilarious, George Clooney's stupidity in those movies. But, yeah, I mean, they are one of a kind. And they've never felt old either. Like you said, they've been been making movies since before we were born, and I think they're in their 60s now, or they're at least in their late 50s, and they they still have so much energy in all of their films. And, yeah, they go opposite of whatever their perceptions are with each movie. Um, I was going to say earlier, you, you reference this scene often, and admittedly... I didn't really remember much of it because I had only seen Burn After Reading once. (laughs) But the J.K. Simmons character in Burn After Reading is essentially, it feels like it's the Coen brothers commenting on their own filmography. Mm -hmm. Uh, Because that movie is the silliest movie. It has the dumbest plot. It really does. It's like you said, it's like the dumbest characters who are getting into all sorts of buffoonery. If like anyone could just communicate with each other, that movie would not have happened. And I remember I liked it. I saw that in a the theater. I liked it when I first saw it. I hadn't revisited it. I liked it more the second time. Yeah. And there is this wonderful narrative tool where they do it either <laughs> two or three times where J.K. Simmons, the head of the CIA and this, or, or I shouldn't say that, but he's whatever. He's higher up in the CIA and an underling keeps reporting <laughs> to him on the events of the movie. Uh. And the last time it happens is the end of the movie. And he's like, Jesus fucking Christ. Yeah. What do we learn, Palmer? I don't know, sir. I don't fucking know either. I guess we learned not to do it again. Yes, sir. I'm fucked if I know what we did. Yes, sir. It's uh, hard to say. Jesus fucking Christ. (laughs) (laughs) That that whole sentiment, that tone, it's like that is... That's the Coen brothers right it there. Is. That scene is the perfect microcosm for the career yes. of the Coen brothers. So yep. I'm, I'm sad to see that they may, it feels like the end of an era, but if Joel Cohen is still making movies. You know, it lives on a little bit and there are so many to go back and revisit. Like I had a blast going back to seeing, you know, and seeing Barton Fink in the Hudsucker mm. proxy. And oh yeah. yeah. You know, ones that I was a little less familiar with and watching them again and, yeah, they're just, there's so much in all of their movies too with scenery and philosophy and there's a deeper meaning to much of it. And that that's another thing that I find so interesting about them is they seem like two of the most intelligent people ever. And then they can also come across as they're just normal guys. Like yeah. there's this secretness to them yes. that, that they're a little elusive in interviews, not unlike the other sibling duo that we talked about making just an individual movie this year with the Wachowskis. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also when you like read interviews with them and see them, they seem very down to earth too, which yeah. I think speaks to their movies because they have so many normal characters and they clearly just like, they have a great sense of humor and they like normal and fun things, but then they can make something like a serious man or Barton Fink that have these much deeper religious or 
philosophical ideas going on. So, oh, the the, the scene in a serious man with the story of the dentist um, who finds the the Hebrew letters on the tooth, and it's like this whole story. And Michael Stuhlberg is so invested, and he wants to know. And the rabbi is just like, uh, who cares? <laughs> like, <laughs> like, it, and they they don't explain it; they just let it sit there. And they they're definitely from the sort of that David Lynch school of the movies are the talking. I don't want to talk about the movie. That's why I made the movie. Like I have nothing to say about it. I, the reason I didn't write it down or make a speech is I, I'm just going to take all these feelings and pour it into this, to this film. Um, and it's just, they, they let the, they let the work speak for itself. Yeah. Um, Jeff Bridges tells stories of them just kind of like giggling on the set. And, you know, like you said, they seem that you'd think they'd be these very sort of self-serious auteurs, like, you know, our movies aren't like other movies, but they're not like that at all. They're just, they just love making movies and they just want to keep making them. Um, and yeah, just all the genres they've done. I mean, gangster, uh, screwball comedy, um, whatever genre Raising Arizona is like, these are just great. Like, it's just, uh, I'll never get sick of watching a Coen Brothers movie ever. It'll never no, it'll never get old to go back. I'm always going to laugh at the scene in Burn After Reading where Brad Pitt is looking at a Word document and he says, <laughs> and then there's these other files that are just like numbers, array, numbers and dates and numbers and numbers and dates and numbers. And I think that's the shit, man. The raw intelligence. And so what's also surprising about Ethan perhaps stepping away is last decade, they wrote a lot of screenplays that they didn't direct. Yes. So it seemed like they were even more prolific in the 2010s than they had been. Although in the 2000s, they released so many movies. I think seven movies they directed just in that one decade. So a lot of stuff. But then in the 2010s, they directed, I think, what, four? Yeah, four movies. Mm -hmm. And then they also wrote the screenplay to like, Bridge of Spies and Unbroken and Suburbicon. So they were and, really, really and, uh, active. Garfield, A Tale of Two Kids. Oh, no, I'm sorry. That's Ethan <laughs> Cohen, which is a real Oh, guy. my God. That's, yes. A real it, fucking guy. Is he one of the Tropic Thunder screenwriters or Transformers? And yeah. Bill Murray has joked that the reason he signed on to Garfield was he read the he read it incorrectly. He thought it was written by Ethan Cohen. So he was like, oh, man, that sounds great. And then... So I don't know what his excuse for the second one was, but for the first That's... one, he thought he was doing an Ethan Cohen scripted Garfield movie. Cause there's a guy named Ethan <laughs> Cohan. There's an actor named Steve S Spielberg. So, you know, you can, you can, there's all kinds of ways to succeed in Hollywood folks. <laughs> I have about 20 million guesses why Bill Murray ended up doing Garfield too. Yeah. I think, it might be on the low end. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a good, that's a good guess probably. Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, Interesting enough, I did not think we would be talking so much about the Coen's filmography and more on, but they're just they're just so interesting to talk about, and they've made such a wonderful they have such a wonderful filmography. But going back to the tragedy of Macbeth, like I said, I think my recommendation for it would be I would hesitate in recommending it. I think if you are a like I said, a massive Shakespeare fan or just a fan of this particular story from Shakespeare then I absolutely recommend it because you're getting everything you want out of Mm. the Macbeth story. But then I also think if you're into filmmaking and if you're into more of the technical things like sound and visuals and 
the just the experience, the the atmosphere and tone that a movie can create, then I would absolutely recommend this. And it's it's a merciful runtime too. It's only about an hour and forty five minutes, so it's not Macbeth. You know, his shortest play, and it's his best one because it's his shortest one. Because ah. I, I'm not going to do it, but you know, brevity is the soul of wit. Blah 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 blah. But um, <laughs> I would recommend it to maybe, like you said, like you know, film film buffs, Shakespeare nerds. Um, and if you just kind of want to see a, a an old fashioned movie star in a really really good role, I would also maybe recommend. Like I'd recommend this to my dad. He doesn't love Shakespeare. He doesn't love movies that are this sort of uh, surreal. But he loves Denzel, and so I told him, "Oh yeah, you'd, you'd like this movie." Okay, I'm glad you said that. I actually kind of shied away from commenting on the performances because. I love both Denzel Washington and Francis McDermott so much that I, th- they seemed fine, but it was, hard, it was, it was really hard for me to, to grade them, grade their performances since this is such a specific type of performance. And you know? they're so good that it's almost like, yeah, as, as expected, they were great. And you just kind of, yeah, yeah. The, the two of the juiciest acting roles you could ask for from two of i like i said in the episode with zach really two of the greatest actors we've ever had you know uh again we could talk all day about francis mcdermott is particularly in fargo Mm -hmm. and then denzel you could list about 12 that he's phenomenal and uh i had watched malcolm x for the first time earlier this year and was mesmerized by his performance so they're they're wonderful i just (laughs) <laughs> I didn't really know what to say about the performances because I mean, Hey, if you, a lot of their scenes, especially Denzel, he's alone and he's talking mm-hmm. to himself. So the fact that he's carrying a scene by himself and expressing so many different emotions while also reciting this lengthy verbal, to me, verbal diary. Let's put that yeah. on, the, on the poster. Yeah. All the Shakespeare. Mesmerizing <laughs> Kevin Romani, verbal diarrhea. <laughs> tomorrow. And tomorrow and tomorrow creeps in this petty pace from day to day to the last syllable of recorded time. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools the way to dusty death. Out. Out we've kindled. Life is but a walking shadow. A poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot. Full of sound and fury signifying nothing. That Bill Shakespeare and his verbal diary. Yeah. <laughs> hey, but it's not for everyone. I mean, it, it is for everyone in terms of its like themes and like you said, Shakespeare's themes, his his characters, his the ideas he kind of introduced into. But in, the actual fact of sitting through a Shakespeare play, like that's not for everyone. Like you know, not everyone has to go. I mean, a lot of his plays suck. <laughs> you don't see a lot of adaptations of Timon of Athens because that play is terrible. Because it was written by a guy in the 1600s. It's lame. So, yeah. yeah. Well, very good. So, like I said, uh, you know, recommend it. But you have to be in a particular type of mood and have to be a particular type of fan. But anyway, thank you very much for listening and see this and all Coen Brother movies. Agreed. Hashem doesn't owe us the ancillary. Hashem doesn't owe us anything. The obligation runs the other way. 
Why does he make us feel the questions if he's not going to give us any answers? He hasn't told me. And what happened to the goy? The goy? Who cares? I want to sell you death sticks. I don't want to sell you death sticks. You want to go home and rethink your life. I want to go home and rethink my life.